Recording in progress. Well, this is the time of year that there are many events taking place, both secular and religious, and I've been marking a few of my own. It was 40 years ago this week, this past week, that I asked a young lady out for a, out for a date, and 16 months later, I married her. <laughs> 40 years this past week, time really, time really flies. And two weeks from today, Saturday, March 11th, will be the 90th anniversary of the founding of Restoration Bible Church and Restoration Ministries, the forerunner of Yeshurun, 90 years ago in two weeks. And April will mark the 20th anniversary of Bet Yeshurun Assembly. Lots been going. Lots been going on. Time is flying. And 42 years ago, this coming July 3rd, I signed the purchase agreement on this church building, and our first worship service was here on the 4th of July. Need a date to remember? <laughs> 1981. And by the way, concerning my wife, you might be interested to know where I took her on our first date. church service yeah, right. here. Yeah. Fact, so she could hear me preach when I was pastoring the Bible church. Yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> church service. And we and we had a nice time. Must have worked out. <laughs> Must have been the right thing to do. And uh, lastly, we have the worldly churches beginning the annual celebration of Lent. The 40 days leading up to the mainstream church celebration of Easter and all the other church-invented holidays, I didn't say holy days, holidays yep. surrounding the Easter celebration in the churches. And uh, yesterday evening, my daughter surprised my wife and I, and she stopped off on her way home from work at the Royal Oak United Methodist Church and bought some fish dinners. <laughs> Why is a Methodist church selling fish dinners during Lent? <laughs> it all goes back to the traditions of men that permeated from Roman Catholicism. But first of all, did you know that the word Lent appears in the Bible seven times? It does. But before you try to convince me to add it to the BYA calendar, <laughs> I mean, uh, admit to you uh, that the word in scripture has nothing to do with hot cross buns or Easter bunnies no, or right. chocolate candy. <laughs> nothing nothing like that. For example, 1 Samuel 2.20 says, And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, Yahuwah give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to Yahuwah. And they went into their own home. In Jeremiah 15:10, woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent on usury, nor men have lent to me on usury. So the word lent is a verb and defined as the past and past participle of lend. It has nothing to do with a 40-day period ending in Easter. 
that's what the churches have corrupted words to turn them into so-called religious holidays. It has nothing to do with Yeshua's sacrifice, but early churches have created a pseudo-religion, complete with hot cross buns and all the other <laughs> trappings. The complete Jewish Bible, Jeremiah 15.10, translates that verse, I neither lend nor borrow. And, you know, the true meaning of lent has to do with usury, and the churches won't condemn usury. <laughs> so the true meaning of the word they don't want. So, uh, again, why is a Protestant church selling fish dinners during lent? Yeah. Well, Catholic doctrines have permeated Protestant churches and even secular restaurants, like big boy restaurants, have Lenten fish specials. And did you know that McDonald's fish sandwich was originated due to Lent? Really? Having fish for Lent? Yeah. I guess some good came out of it if you like fish sandwiches. <laughs> And this year, Lent began Wednesday, March 2nd, but before Lent was still another church-invented holiday, Trove Tuesday. They bought all kinds of invented religious functions. The day before Lent, Trove Tuesday, which they say is a time to clean the soul, according to the Roman Catholicism. And then the first day of Lent is called Ash Wednesday. You won't find Ash Wednesday in the Bible either. <laughs> so you can see there's a, a lot of invented customs. And you know, we're often criticized or accused of legalism. <laughs> but in the Catholic and many of the Protestant churches, here's what you have for Lent. During the second week of Lent, full meals are allowed only on Wednesday and Friday. How's that for legalism? Mm -hmm. On weekdays during Lent, meat, eggs, dairy, fish, wine, and oil are restricted. The week before Lent, all animal products, including meat, are prohibited. And Good Friday is a day for a complete fast during which members are encouraged to eat nothing. And according to Roman Catholicism, senior citizens and those below 14 years of age and the very sick, sick are exempted from all the restrictions on Lent. So I'm exempt from all that stuff. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm exempt. <laughs> uh, so uh, some traditions are innocuous and harmless, but when they transgress scripture, they are to be countered and opposed. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest unto me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy Elohim, I will also forget thy children. Mark 7 verse 9 says, And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandments of Elohim, that ye may keep your own traditions. And that's repeated again as a double witness in Matthew 15 verse 3. So, rejecting Yah's commandments, such as the Torah commandments, they have then substituted their own legalism, the true legalism. So man's holidays today replace and supersede Yah's holy days. And there are not only Christian traditions of men, but there are Jewish traditions, again, of men too. Uh, 
1.14 says, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Uh, and uh, complete Jewish Bible translates that saying, no longer pay attention to Judaistic myths or the commands of people who reject truth. Bible and basic English translates it, giving no attention to the fictions of the Jews and the rules of men who have no true knowledge. Mm. And I uh, like the Phillips translation also. It says, Christians with a proper contempt for Jewish fairy tales and orders issued by men who have forsaken the path of truth. Now, how important that is. And today I want to focus on just one particular uh, Jewish myth that's properly taught in the churches. And I've titled this, The Place of Israel's Conversion. I can't tell you how many times through the years I've either read or heard it said that of course Israel would return to the promised land uh, uh, as unbelievers. Of course. <laughs> and they never seem to uh, give any evidence for that. Well, a few years ago I was uh, listening on Christian radio, which you often do, to Dr. J. Vernon McGee in one of his Through the Bible radio broadcasts, very popular evangelical uh, theologian, now passed away, but he's, his broadcasts are still played on the radio. He made uh, a surprising statement. He said that the return of the Jews and setting up of the Israeli state was not the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And that piqued my interest in exploring what the Bible has to say on the subject. However, up until about the middle of the 20th century, it was common for Bible expositors to teach that Israel would be a redeemed people when they returned to the Holy Land. Here's an example. Here's a statement I found in an old Christian magazine and library uh, published in 1903 by a Canadian pastor, Reverend Alfred Parham. And he said this, I cannot see that they are to go back while still in unbelief. They were exiled practically because of the rejection of the Lord and I am unaware of any scripture foretelling their readmission to Palestine in any national sense until they are willing to accept him. God would be stultifying himself were he to permit such a thing." Unquote. And going back further, in the 18th century famous biblical expositor John Gill, evangelical, stated, that Israel would, quote, come with singing unto Zion to the gospel church and join themselves to it, praising God for his grace and calling and converting them, adoring the riches of his distinguishing love and singing the new song of redeeming grace, unquote. Well, when you stop and think about it, it would make little sense for God to punish and exile Israel for the sin of unbelief and then turn around and bring them back while still in a state of unbelief, and even reward them for that. But that's what the churches are saying happened in 1948, and it doesn't make any logical sense, or it will show scriptural sense. The Lord isn't double-minded. The purpose of the exile of Israel was for their cleansing and restoration and conversion. As Ezekiel said in chapter 36, verses 25 through 29, 
He said, there, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your Elohim. I will also save you from all your uncleannesses, unquote. The prophet Isaiah also made it clear that Israel will return as a cleansed and converted people. And this is often sung in the churches. I'm not a singer, but I will attempt to hear. You may have heard this in some of the churches as a chorus. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. That's right from word for word from the King James Version of Isaiah 51 verse 11. The redeemed would return. That didn't happen in 1948. Israel's conversion and cleansing was to take place while in the lands of their exile, not at some point following their return after some unknown extended period of time. This well-known passage in Isaiah 51 is, uh, as I said, quite popular as a chorus in churches, but people don't stop to think about what it's saying and about its importance in Bible prophecy. And uh, it was no, in no sense fulfilled by an unredeemed, Christ-denying people entering Palestine in 1948 or any other time. Isaiah repeats this prophecy of redeemed Israel with nearly identical wording in chapter 35 and verse 10. And the Barnes commentary says, there can be no doubt he meant to describe the deliverance under the Messiah. The annotated Bible agrees that it, quote, shows the rans ransomed of the Lord returning to Zion, delivered from sorrow and sighing, filled with joy and sing salvation songs. It is the bringing back to their own land of a delivered people, unquote. <coughs> now, you can't picture that, 1948. Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says this passage, quote, more fully relates to the completed redemption of both literal and spiritual Israel, unquote. And Professor A.B. Davidson in the Century Bible says, in the wilderness at the Exodus, Israel first found this personal relation with God, and it is in the wilderness that it shall be perfectly realized again, and shall respond as in the early days." Unquote. Now the establishment of the Jewish state in 1948 does not fit the requirements of the return according to the biblical prophets. The administrative state of the returnees was to be designed around one king, Ezekiel 37:22. The Israelis established a democracy of sorts, not ruled by a king. If the prophecy is instead given a spiritual connotation, and the sovereign king is the Messiah, Yeshua, this will be further evidence that Israel was to return in Christian faith. Israel's return is described this way by the prophet Jeremiah. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them and will bring them again 
through their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall be lacking, saith Yahuwah. Jeremiah 23, verses 3 and 4. And of course, in stark contrast, Christian proselytism is actually forbidden by law in the modern Israeli state. Jeremiah 23, verses 7 and 8 says, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith Yahuwah, that they shall no more say, Yahuwah liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but Yahuwah liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land, unquote. The Kyle and Delish commentary says about this verse, the branch of David will manifest himself to the people of Israel as Yahuwah Sitkenu. This name is variously expounded. The older Christian commentaries understand that the Messiah is here called Jehovah and must therefore be the true Elohim and he is called our righteousness inasmuch as he justifies us by his merit. Barnes commentary says, I will never cease from doing them good. On their side, I will put my fear in their hearts that they depart not from me. In these two conditions consists the certainty of the eternal duration of the covenant. And uh, Baker's, uh, Baker's commentary says, he promised a regathering, Ezekiel 37. God will gather his people from all the lands where they had been in exile and will bring them back to the land of Israel where they'll live in safety, Jeremiah 31, 1 through 17. He promised an everlasting covenant, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Not only will the people of Israel be restored to their land, but they will be restored to their God. They will be his people, he will be their God. With singleness of heart, they will follow the Lord as he makes an everlasting covenant with them. This everlasting covenant is another term for the new covenant. It was called everlasting to stress its duration. Then God will never stop doing good to his people and they will never turn away from him. Unquote. And the prophet Jeremiah further says in chapter 32, verses 37 through 40, Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger, and in my fury, and my wrath, and I will bring them again unto the place, this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, their Elohim, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and of their children after them, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. Thomas Cope the evangelical theologian of the 18th century said this and the following verses to the 41st respect such a return from the captivity as much and ought to be understood of the preaching of the gospel of the manifestation of the Messiah of the new covenant of the foundation of the Christian church of the final consequences thereof for example we cannot be assured that the Jews ever dwelt safely in their place that they had all one heart and walked in one way. But in the 43rd verse, the return is foretold in these very words. And the prophet Isaiah in chapter 26, verses 1 through 4 says, 
In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will Elohim appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in Yahuwah forever, for in Yahuwah Elohim is everlasting strength for the rock of ages. Alternate translation there uses the term rock of ages. And evangelist D.L. Moody talked about that and said the tree of peace strikes its roots into the crevices of the rock of ages. They realize at last that in Yah Yahuwah, Hebrew Yah Yahuwah, is everlasting strength of the rock of ages. It was from this expression that Augustus Toplady got the idea for one of the greatest hymns of the English language, Rock of Ages. And you're all familiar with that hymn. In other words, from pa this passage, Augustus Toplady um, got the idea for his hymn. And I was uh, fortunate that uh, in one of my trips to England, uh, the host drove me to the Cheddar Gorge in England and showed me the spot which, by tradition, uh, Augustus Toplady was at. He'd been riding his his horse and buggy. It was 1775, no cars. <laughs> he was riding his horse and buggy, and a bad, terrible storm blew up. And so he ran to a cleft in the rocks that he found there in the Cheddar Gorge to escape uh, being pelted by the storm. And the words to the hymn Rock of Ages came to him. And then he went, returned later back to London where he was the preacher at Orange Street Congregational Church in the old part of London across from the National Gallery. And the hymn Rock of Ages was first sung from that pulpit. And I was so thrilled to be able to be asked by that church to preach there from the pulpit where Rock of Ages was first sung back in 1775. So a lot of, lot of memories uh, I have. And uh, it just makes this passage of scripture and the hymn Rock of Ages so much more vivid to me. Isaiah chapter 35 is headlined in my Bible, The Ransom Shall Return. And the biblical background commentary says, the hundreds of miles from exile back to Jerusalem will become a highway of holiness exclusive to God's redeemed people. The return of Israel from worldwide dispersion in some editions of the Bible, the supplied summary titles at the tops of the pages of Isaiah will read in substance blessings on the church and curses on Israel. But in fact, almost all these predictions are directly aimed at Israel whether blessings or curses, and the church comes in later or by application, unquote. And they hint at a very important point, that Israel in the world today, uh, New Covenant Israel, believe, is believers of physical Israel joined by a spiritual Israel called out of all nations. And that is New Covenant Israel. See, the New Covenant, uh, New Covenant Israel is not the same as Old Covenant Israel. And they are, are hinting at this here uh, in uh, the biblical background commentary. Kyle Delish commentary says, not only unclean persons from among the heathen, 
but even unclean persons belonging to Israel itself will never pass along that holy road. None but the church purified and sanctified through sufferings and those connected with it. To them and to them alone does this road belong, which Yahuwah has made and secured, and which so readily strikes the eye that even an idiot could not miss it. <laughs> I'm quoting here from Kyle and Delish commentary, a very well-respected commentary, and he's saying that in effect that the conversion of Israel prior to the return is so obvious in the scriptures <laughs> that even an idiot couldn't miss it. <laughs> and yet the churches all teach something different, don't they? Uh, so, so only redeemed people could return to the promised land, which is so obvious that only an idiot could miss it. Some may claim instead that this prophecy was achieved centuries earlier by the homecoming of a small number from Babylon in 538 BC, but this cannot be the case. Less than 50,000 returnees, according to Ezra 2.64, limited to only two out of the 12 tribes, Judah and Benjamin, according to Ezra 4 verse 1, arrived in Jerusalem to persecution by the Persians and non-Hebrew Samaritans followed by centuries of struggle and oppression, leading to over a million slain and the remaining exiled in the Roman War of 66 to 73 AD. This interpretation would also conflict with Amos 9.15, which promised, I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith Yahuwah thy Elohim. Similarly, the establishment of the Jewish state in 1948 was not met by everlasting joy, nor its sorrow and mourning flee away. Instead, they were greeted with a Mideast war and your constant conflict ever since. Uh, including, uh, you pick up today's Detroit News and read about, more about the constant, uh, the current fighting going on there as we speak. Uh, yet today it's popular for Bible teachers to call the events of 1948 a fulfillment of Bible prophecy and they claim that Israel was returning unbelief. So how do they attempt to biblically justify this? There are a number of Bible passages, and I've given you some of them, that support Israel's conversion in the lands of their exile, every one of which seemed to be intentionally ignored by the modern clergy. The passage in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 and 25, is instead put forward by them in rebuttal. It says, quote, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols, while I cleanse you, unquote. Now the late biblical scholar Bernard Bateson explained, quote, it seems somewhat extraordinary that liberal commentators who are prepared to spend much time disputing the meanings of Hebrew words in order to find grounds for the refutation of truth should not have taken the trouble to examine the Hebrew text in this instance. Had they done so, they would have discovered that the word then, upon which they lay such emphasis, does not appear in the Hebrew text at all. The first word in verses 25 and 31, which our King James translators have rendered then, is merely the Hebrew letter Vav, which is a conjunction. In verses 23, 27, and 28, the same Hebrew letter is translated and. 
though one wonders why the translators have converted this simple copulative in conjunction and into then in verses 25 and 31 and thereby conveyed the idea of an order of events which is entirely absent from the Hebrew text, unquote. Quite interesting. The only verse I've ever heard any of the uh, ministers and commentators give as in, in support of the idea that Israel re would return to Palestine in unbelief was this verse, which is basically mistranslated in the King James. And in fact, a number of other Bible translations correctly render the conjunction, conjunction in verses 25 and 31 as and, including John Wycliffe back in 1394, the concordant literal, Young's literal, the scriptures, Leeser, Jewish Old Testament, Brenton's English is Septuagint, the Bible and Basic English, and many others. The place of Israel's conversion is made plain by the prophet Hosea in chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And Jeremiah confirms this in chapter 31, verse 2. Thus saith Yahuwah, the people which were left to the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, unquote. The wilderness is a translation of the Hebrew Midbar, as defined by Cruden's Concordance as referring, quote, to all places that are not cultivated, but which are chiefly destined to the feeding of cattle and on which trees grow wild. So when wilderness is mentioned in scripture, we are not always to imagine it to be a place forsaken, abandoned, and void of cities or inhabitants. Unquote from concordance, Cruden's Concordance. We read about Yahuwah's mercy on Israel in Hosea 2, verses 15 through 20. And it shall be at that day, saith Yahuwah, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt call me no more Bailey. Belai, for I will take away the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and the fowls of heaven, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and sword and the battle out of the earth. And I will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahuwah. Unquote. And uh, reading this, that there, the bow and sword would be broken, there'd be no battles in the land at the time of the return, certainly doesn't fit 1948 or ever since. Uh, Thomas Cope, the 18th century commentator, says, but the words especially refer to the times of the gospel as if Jehovah had said speak what shall touch her heart in her outcast state in the wilderness of the Gentile world by the proffers of mercy in the gospel unquote. so again the verses are talking about a redeemed people returning in the next chapter chapter 3 of Hosea we read verses 4 and 5 for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek Yahuwah their Elohim 
and David their king, and shall fear Yahuwah and his goodness in the latter days. And Barnes commentary says, the typical priesthood seized in presence of the true priest after the order of Melchizedek. The line of Aaron is forgotten, unknown, and cannot be recovered. So hopelessly are their Jewish genealogies confused that they themselves conceive it to be one of the offices of the Messiah to disentangle them. Uh, that was interesting. Uh, Jews today have no idea uh, what their ancestry is. They, they said it would be up to the Messiah when he comes to, to let them know who they are. Mm. <laughs> Thomas Koch said, uh, oh, he just talked about the ephod was a, a garment like a cloak without sleeves covering the body uh, down to the pit of the stomach. And it took its name for the straightness of its straightness of its collar and the manner it was fastened about the person, that was the ephod. The prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah 12 and verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now the annotated Bible has this to say about that verse. This is another great messianic prophecy mentioned in the New Testament in John 19, verse 37. It is written after the blessed side of our Lord had been pierced. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. It is significant that the Holy Spirit, speaking in the preceding verse, that the scripture be fulfilled, avoids this well-known phrase in the verse we quoted and does not say that the looking on him has been fulfilled. It was not then fulfilled, nor is it fulfilled during the age of gospel preaching, but its fulfillment comes in the day which is prophetically described in the verses before us. Matthew 24, 30 and Revelation 1, 7 refer also to this portion of our chapter. The New Testament quotations as given above are to any believer sufficient evidence that the Lord Jesus Christ is meant and therefore explain the passage fully, unquote. So, in other words, they're saying the heavens of Jerusalem will be believing in Yeshua, the Messiah. And the speaker's commentary summarizes all this evidence saying, the place of their rejection, the dispersion, was to be the place of their restoration. This is certain from Hosea 1.10, where the restoration to God's favor precedes the return from the land of exile, unquote. So just a, a multitude of Bible verses, as well as commentaries, that honestly state that the Bible is saying Israel was to be a redeemed people when they returned. And when you pair that knowledge and understand that people over there in Palestine with the constant wars uh, are not fulfilling this verse and you realize who true Israel is in the world today that it's believing physical Israelites plus believers call out of all nations you can see a whole different perspective of what scripture is saying and you can see just how far off base the churches with with all their concern about following man's holidays and, and rituals and doctrines, just how far off base they are. Mm -hmm. 
And as we enter this so-called Lenten season, it's a time that we can really ponder the fact that just how far off the tracks the church has become and how important it is for what we're teaching to get across to people and point them to Torah, point them to true Israel, showing that we are the people of the book. The promises are being fulfilled in us, not in some other uh, group of Christ rejectors uh, who entered uh, Palestine under totally unscriptural circumstances, uh, and yet the churches, you'll hear them over and over again, of course Israel would return in unbelief. <laughs> Well, show me that in the scriptures, and they cannot do it. So at any rate, we'll, we'll close with that. Are there any questions?